on July 3rd of this year, 2021, I woke up to some sad news. Uh, my friend and the guest on today's episode of the podcast that originally was released last year, uh, Mickey Newton, had passed away. Uh, Mickey was one of the sweetest, most articulate, well-rounded, just frankly impressive people that I've, I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. I met her, God, it had to be in 2005, 2006. I just started at Old Miss. I was in the broadcast journalism department, which is where she worked and where she had just retired from this past May. Getting Mickey on the podcast was sort of a big get for me. I was I was so excited to have her on. Um, she's not like a nationally known name or anything, though a lot of people who knew her will tell you that she should have been. I'm among them. But it was a big get because I knew that I was talking to someone who was very passionate about films, about classic films, classic Hollywood films in, in particular. Very knowledgeable. And uh, today's episode, of course, is about The Bride of Frankenstein, one of her favorite films. And it quickly became one of my favorite films, especially after speaking to her about it. Uh, she made me look at that movie in ways that I, I hadn't before. I knew that by having her on and to talk about movies with me, I knew that it would be a good episode. Uh, Mickey and I had uh, shared several cups of coffee at the local coffee shop in Oxford, Mississippi, which is, of course, where Old Miss is located and where I lived for a good 10 years before relocating to the Nashville area. So I knew that we would have a good talk. We had an easy, comfortable rapport with one another. And I, that's not to say that that was something that only she and I had. She, she had that way with everyone, frankly. Very warm, always accommodating, always patient, never spoke over anyone, never spoke ill of anyone, as far as I know. She was a wonderful person, frankly. I really don't know what else to say. She was funny and vivacious. And to just go into her office on campus at Ole Miss was to immediately have a really good idea about who she was. Like her little, the placard with her name on it, Miss Mickey Newton, tapestries all over the place. Mickey was a consummate professional. When I met her, she worked at Old Miss, and uh, I knew her in her capacity as the gatekeeper of that precious equipment that all of us broadcast journalism students needed, the cameras. And she was a strict taskmaster, but always with a smile, always with a, a, a welcoming tone in her voice, even when she was telling you flat out that there was no way on God's green earth that you were going to get that camera when you needed it. She was a videographer, a filmmaker, a director. She won an Emmy for her reporting. Uh, she was a journalist, a producer, an anchor, and a filmmaker. And like me, she enjoyed a good cup of coffee and a good talk. And that's really where she and I bonded. She used to always take this one particular spot at High Point Coffee in Oxford, Mississippi, where she could read, have her coffee, and just kind of people watch. Oxford is one of those small towns that has a cast of local characters 
and Mickey was certainly among them. Oxford is much less interesting today than it was before she left us. After hearing of her passing, I thought it would be perhaps a good idea to repost this episode. One, it's one of my favorite episodes that we've done here so far, uh, and that's mainly because of Mickey's contributions, which you'll hear. And two, because I think the world needs to hear what Mickey had to say. Not necessarily in this episode. I'm, I hope that you dig a little bit after hearing this and and look into her life. If you go to YouTube, look up uh, Voodoo Child, Memoirs of a Freak. It's a, a documentary about Mickey that was produced in 2013. I'm about halfway through it right now. It's absolutely wonderful. And I'd like you to visit her blog before whatever happens to blogs after the owner passes away uh, happens to it. It's called Mickey Newton Classic Cinema.com. That's M Y K K I Newton Classic Cinema.com. It's just filled to the brim, bursting with her love and appreciation of classic films. And her writing is just wonderful. She was such a talented writer. If you want to learn about classic cinema, if you want to get turned on to something back then, it's a perfect place to start. Anyway, I don't know what else to say. I just wanted to give her friends and family who maybe missed this another opportunity to hear her voice and to hear her doing what she loved to do, which was talk movies. I was looking forward to having her on as a guest on future episodes. So anyway, let's try to leave the sadness behind us. And let's listen to Mickey doing what she loved, talking classic cinema, one last time. All right, here's the episode. And welcome to another Our Favorite Movies edition of Filmography Club. I'm Jason. Today we look at Bride of Frankenstein, the 1935 James Whale-directed horror masterpiece that set the standard for sequels for decades to come. Released four years after the original Frankenstein, it garnered rave reviews and did pretty well at the box office too, though it failed to even come close to the box office success of its predecessor. With a haunting score, superb cast, and a masterful director, Bride of Frankenstein can be enjoyed on a purely narrative level, but if you're looking for subtext in your classic cinema, this one delivers an awful lot of that. My guest today is Mickey Newton. Mickey is a film historian and writer. She's also an award-winning broadcast journalist and documentary filmmaker with more than 40 years of experience in journalism and acting. She's a former television news anchor, reporter, entertainment correspondent, and film critic. She studied at the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute in New York City and appeared in several feature films, television shows, and on stage. Mickey is currently a producer slash videographer slash editor at the University of Mississippi's School of Journalism and New Media. She researches and writes extensively about classic cinema on her very readable blog, MickeyNewtonClassicCinema.com. As you will notice, she is an avid fan of classic cinema with an almost encyclopedic grasp on the subject. She's also terribly sweet, and we had a great conversation, so here it is. I give you my talk with Mickey Newton about 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. Hi, Mickey. It's good to see you. Good to see you. So I reached out to you, asked you if you wanted to be on the show and asked what your what your favorite movie is. And you responded pretty quickly with Bride of Frankenstein. Tell me about that. I did put together a list one time in my top 
10 favorite movies. It, it, that is nearly impossible for me to do because classic films, that's my passion. And for me to pick one as my favorite would be if I had children to pick my favorite child. So, so I, I was like, I don't want to hurt your other feelings. But my favorites list is very eclectic. But my expertise and my deepest love is classic horror and science fiction. So Bride of Frankenstein always ends up at the top of any list that I make of favorite films. And I love it so much because of the atmosphere, because of the story behind it, because of James Well, who directed it. He actually meant for it to be a comedy after direct after he directed Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein. And then they came back to him and said, we want to do this sequel. Well, Frankenstein was such a huge success that Well had carte blanche to do what he wanted to do. And you see that in this film. The characters are much more lively. He actually meant for most of it to be a comedy. And people don't realize that. There's a story that he was at a screening and was sitting there laughing at all these parts that he had put in. And a woman sitting next to him finally said, sir, if you're going to laugh, I wish you would please leave. And he had to get up and leave his own movie because he was laughing so hard. That seems weird to me. I had no idea. I, I dug around a bit to get ready for this. I didn't know that he considered it a movie a comedy. That That seems weird to me because it seems creepy. The movie yeah. handles some really big subjects just on the, the text itself. And then the subtext, there's a lot more heady stuff going on in there. And to hear that he thought that it was a comedy, that hmm, <laughs> that surprises me. If, uh, if, if you've ever seen the movie Gods and Monsters. I almost watched it for this, but oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. That will, that will really fill you in on a lot of what was going on at the time and the kind of person that James Well was. Mm-hmm. He was he was gay and very open about it. And the character of Dr. Pretorius in that movie, I, I always feel is as Wells alter ego. A self-insert. Yes. So wonderfully uber over the top gay without saying I'm gay, but he's, he's wonderful. I love that character. Yeah, he was, a, he was a great character. This movie, I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And then after digging around, I realized, oh, this is considered to be one of the better sequels ever. I enjoyed Frankenstein. I bought the Universal Monsters box set about a year, year and a half ago, and I burned through them pretty quickly. And I remember enjoying Frankenstein, but nowhere nearly as much as I enjoyed Bride of Frankenstein. Far yeah. and away, a better picture. There's also, if, if anyone watches it, you'll see so much of young Frankenstein that was taken from this movie. I heard yeah. that. I've watched Bride twice to get ready for this podcast for our conversation. Once with commentary, and then once just to watch the movie as it's meant to be watched. And yeah, somebody pointed that out. When you watch the scene today of, of the creature when he finds the blind man alone at his home in the woods. My favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, that whole scene... Yeah, of course. You immediately now think of 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 Gene Hackman uh, and and uh, Peter Boyle doing that scene as a comedy in uh, Young Frankenstein. But still, I have to say, I haven't it, seen it. Haven't seen Young Frankenstein. But go ahead, please. You watch the, you watch Bride of Frankenstein. You see that scene. You know, I I thought I'm going to laugh now because I can't get Young Frankenstein out of my head. But it's not. It, the scene is so powerful and is so 
touching. And it, at the end of it, near the end of it, the creature, Karloff, just has this one little tear that comes down his eye because he had found this friend. And it's so moving. It's so touching. It is. It's it's a beautiful scene. And then, of course, the hunters show up and ruin it for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Carradine. One of those early John Carradine roles. Let me uh, let me pull something up real quick because okay. uh, let's see here. Yeah, so we've got John Carradine as a hunter, uncredited, and Walter Brennan as a peasant. That's right. When they um, he's a peasant, uh, uncredited. Yeah, one of one of the creatures' victims when they find find them. Walter Brennan is is like you said, a peasant, but he he actually discovers them and and they run into the home. And um, Mrs. Newman, that's who it was. And he says, poor Mrs. Newman, you know, she got, and I think that's his one line, but uh, Brennan, gosh, he was an extra for so many years. He also has a very small part in the invisible man. The invisible man steals his bicycle. He doesn't have any lines. And, and oh, really that's his. Him. Okay. But, but that, that's him. Brennan, of course, went on to win three Best Supporting Actor Academy Awards, and he always accredited the fact that back then, the Extras Union, they could vote for the Academy Awards, and he said it was all his extra friends that were, uh, that were padding the vote. An extra made good. That's, that's uh-huh. great. I guess before we get to uh, in the weeds here, we should just start at the top and talk about when this movie came out. It's 1935. It's, of course, the sequel to Frankenstein, which was 1931. Both, of course, obviously, Universal Pictures, both directed by James Whale, both, I believe, produced by uh, Carl. Is it Lamley? Yes. Yes. Produced by Carl Lamley Jr. And we've got Boris Karloff returning as the monster. And we have Colin Clive. Yes. Returning as Henry Frankenstein. And I believe that's all of the returning cast and crew from the first film. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken, Mae Clark, who was the original fiance of Dr. Frankenstein and in, in the original Frankenstein, I believe she she became ill and uh, she couldn't do the sequel. So uh, the person they hired <laughs> and uh, oh, God, forgive me. Her name surpasses me now. She was 17 years old at the time. That actress was 17 years old. Are we talking about Valerie Hobson? Yes, Valerie Hobson. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, I did a little digging around on her too. She had a crazy life. If you have, if you haven't looked into Valerie Hobson, if you're interested in a golden age of cinema actresses, look her up because she wound up marrying a British politician who was embroiled in one of the more salacious sex scandals in modern history in the early '60s, I believe. She had a she had a crazy, crazy life. Dwight Fry, who played the original hunchback assistant in, in the original Frankenstein, he's back in this movie, almost playing the same character. He's more of a, a body snatcher and and works as an assistant for for the doctor. There's a wonderful line where they're. They help Dr. Pretorius get into the crypt and find the body to make the bride from. And uh, as he and his partner are leaving, Dwight Fry looks at him and says, what do you say? Next time they ask us to do one of these, we turn ourselves over to the cops and just give ourselves up and go to jail. It's better than this. Yeah, I think one of them said something about how uh, that it's hard out here. It's basically it's hard out here for a murderer. 
That's yeah, a paraphrase, exactly. of course. He doesn't exactly say that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, he has to go back out and find a fresh brain for them. And uh, uh, you know, Doctor Frankenstein assumes he's going to go to the police morgue and get one, but he comes. You know, he kills a girl and and comes back. And says, it's a fresh one. You know, <laughs> only White Fry can say it with with that. So you said you love this movie because of the the atmosphere. Oh yeah, there were shots in that movie. There was the wonderful Uda O'Connor, who's the squeak, the screeching woman. She screeches in everyone, but she's just such a wonderful character actress. She is, uh, and she's in a few of these uh, Universal yeah. movies. As a matter of fact, I think she yeah. was in Invisible Man, was it or Mummy? Yeah, uh huh. Invisible, Invisible Man. Man. Yeah. So so many of those other ones. There's this early scene. They think Doctor Frankenstein is dead in the burned out remains of uh, of the windmill and she's running back to the castle to tell the bride and this is just this wonderful shot that i love wide shot from up above of her running through the little town and the shadows and the fog and i mean it's just it it gets me every time i love that shot and of course i just i love una o'connor uh just the way she screams at everything well they'll be all happy when they're dead in their beds in the morning you know (laughs) Yeah, she's she's a joy to watch. She's at she's very funny. Easily like the most watchable thing in the the scenes that she's in. Yeah, she's fantastic. Wonderful set design in this movie. The whole thing or most of it. There were very few exterior shots. I think I'm right about that. Right. Lots of beautiful set design. The trees with no branches and leaves. Uh-huh. That whole sequence is absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful matte paintings in the background. Just wonderful stuff it, it all adds to that 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 sense of atmosphere and that that score too very memorable score no i don't want to ruin it but there are, there are a couple of times that you can see someone did not iron out the mats very well there are little, little creases in it I it, love adds, it. it gives it like a, a strange kind of light from heaven that comes down i agree i think it adds to the charm yeah and and you can't leave out the influence of the makeup legend jack pierce i mean this is a guy who invented it all I mean, the, the Frankenstein character, the Wolfman character, uh, the mummy, all the, all those. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and sadly, it was one of those situations where, I mean, this guy was a legend and did it all. And uh, by the 50s, Universal gets balled out by somebody else and they decide they don't want to make monster movies anymore. And he's cast to the wayside. But he was so perfect. If you notice the first time you see the monster. Uh, the creature in Bride of Frankenstein when he's down in the cave, I, I guess the hole in the water and just little touches like his hair is singed from the fire. Those kind of little details to make up. His uh, face and hands are also burned. Yes. And yes. as the movie progresses, that all that makeup changes uh-huh. like as time progresses. I also love it's tiny little touches. I, again, uh, when we first see the creature in, in the water, in, in the burned out remains, and there's this owl that's just kind of watching everything. Just the look, I mean, a live owl and just it being a spectator to all this. And, and the, um, I think his name was Hans, the, the man and the woman. The uh, father of the girl who died in yes, the first movie. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and he's doing this wonderful, just cliche acting. Oh, I'm going to get the monster. Oh, Hans, Hans, come back. Don't, don't go. You know, that's mm-hmm. just, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene. Funny scene. That Al stu- stood out to me. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's one of those comic touches that Wells put into the film. You know. Yeah, I noticed the owl when I watched it again last night. Uh-huh. The owl, every time something on screen was about to get 
a little too graphic or suggestive, yeah. it would cut to that insert of that owl looking at it. <laughs> it's a good touch. Uh-huh. They had uh, issues with uh, censorship in, in this movie, getting it made. There were things that they had to change with the movie. I guess we can go ahead and get into some of that stuff, too. There's th- This movie can be enjoyed just as its own story, just on surface level. You can just watch it and appreciate it for the story that it is, and it's great. Then there's subtext to it. There's all sorts of religious stuff going on. There's religious imagery placed all throughout the movie. Do you look into any of that? Do you put any stock in that? Do you think there's anything to it? Or do you just appreciate it for the atmosphere and the the narrative? Yeah, not 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 necessarily. Uh, I I haven't dealt that much into the religious aspects of it. Of course, first thing that stands out is I know the censors had a problem with being two creatures. How can they get married? You know, you you can't you can't allow that to happen. You know that that in itself, the fact that they you know dug up these bodies and made these creatures, and then they were going to have them mate. Uh, I, I I can see where the church would have a problem with that. Sure. There's also other stuff they had a problem with. The scene where he topples the statue in the graveyard. Oh, yeah. Do you know, you know, off to the side, there's the crucifix, right? Mm-hmm. Got the big statue of Christ on the cross. And originally, I think the, the, the shooting script called for him to approach that and for him to think, oh, this guy is also being treated the way that I'm being treated. And he like he tries to commiserate, I believe, with the Christ figure that's on the yeah. wall and that are on the statue. And they the censor board tells him, no way, you can't do that. So he kept he kept that crucifix off to the side in the shot. And his compromise was to smash a statue of an archbishop. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, we'll do it this way then. And no one had a problem with that. No, again, that's another one of those scenes that that that, that I love. Who knew that that's how you could get into the catacombs by, by pushing over the archbishop? Sure. <laughs> But uh, when when the creature goes down into the catacombs and he, and he finds Pretorius, and Pretorius is there having lunch. You know, he's so happy. He enjoys being there. And he brought some wine and he brought some chicken and he's laid it out and the creature shows up and 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 Pretorius says, hey, you want lunch? You know, and so the, and he's explaining to him, yeah, we're going to make a mate for you. And Frank is like, oh, cool, a wife. You know, that's groovy with me. And the creature starts to eat the chicken. Well, when I was a kid for years, when I'd see that, I thought Frankenstein was eating the dead woman's bones. That's oh, my God. And that really gave me the creeps. But I always I love that scene down there. You know, you go back to the very beginning of the film, and that is that classic horror shot of the castle from a distance and the fog and the lightning and the camera slowly pans in. Wonderful, wonderful shot. Little piece of trivia is when they enter the home, there is a maid that's walking the dogs. That's Una O'Connor as well. That opening scene with uh, with Mary Shelley, who is Esther Lancaster, Lancaster, uncredited as the monster, but is credited as Mary Shelley. And she's talking to Lord Byram and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the other guys, the, the England's great sinners, as they say. Right. Uh, and uh, opening up the story, like, oh, that you know, I did not finish with that book. The story continues, and here how it, here's how it goes on. That too is uh, is just a fantastic scene. It's a wonderful framing device, and I believe the producers wanted to jettison the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. James Whale said, if this is not in, um, I'm walking. They had to really twist his arm to get him to come back on for the sequel, because to my understanding, James Whale considered himself to be. At the time, horror was not considered to be something that it could 
yeah. it wasn't grand art by any yeah. means. No. It was sort of you're slumming it when you when you work on a horror picture back in the yeah. day. And he didn't want to go back to that. He considered himself a serious filmmaker and they really had to twist his arm. And in fact, I think they you know how these deals are. They they gave him another movie to let him do whatever he wanted. And yeah. also there's, you know, just just give us the sequel. And he turned out one of the greatest sequels ever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he was he was he was given the opportunity to do what he wanted to do. And the thing is, usually when you take a story that's as iconic as Frankenstein and decide now we're going to make a sequel. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it's always a bad sign. And yet, easily, critically, it, it didn't do nearly as well as the first Frankenstein did at the box office. I looked at yeah. the numbers for this right before we started our call here, and I think the first Frankenstein made twelve million. This one made like two. Yeah. Like yeah. it kind of, I don't know if that's considered a flop by 1935 standards, but it didn't do nearly as well as the first one did. But that's just a lot of words to say that this guy got to do James Whale got to do pretty much whatever he wanted, and he turned in just a critically. I mean, here we are. How many years later? Yeah. You know? Once we got into, uh, in, in the late 50s, Universal sold their horror collection to television stations under the title of Shock Theater. So television stations started showing these late at night. That's where I I first discovered them. You know, we call, those of us who grew up watching uh, uh, the hor- old horror movies, late afternoon movie shows after school or, or late Saturday nights, we call ourselves monster kids. That's where we rediscover. We discovered for the first time those classic universal horror monsters and horror films, and that's when they gained their their greatest audience. Obviously, with television, but the appreciation for what what the films were. And I don't recall ever seeing the original Frankenstein until I was an adult. I can't think of a time that I saw it as a kid. Maybe I did, and I just don't remember it. But Bride of Frankenstein is the one that I always associate with the Frank. Frankenstein franchise. I used to see those movies too on late at night when I was a little kid. And I remember just kind of dismissing them out of hand. It's like, eh, that's old crap for old people. I'm not worried about that. And then again, like you said, once once I got older, once I became an adult and I got interested in film, I realized how important these movies were. Hey, I better brush up on this stuff. And of course, there's been restorations made. And I'm accustomed, you know, in my head as a little kid, I'm watching it on something that's the picture quality is trash. And I'm sure it was a copy of a copy of a copy that a TV station and probably got. God knows how many times because, you know, television stations at that time, the films actually came on film. And Right. And television stations, they could edit them any way they wanted to. And they would chop so many scenes out just to add more commercial time. These are gorgeous films, too. They, they've all been I think they've all been restored yeah. at this point. Beautiful. They look absolutely beautiful on Blu-ray, especially uh-huh. this one. The only thing is whenever you have those those dissolves from one scene uh-huh. to another, the picture quality just nosedives. But the moment that resolve is <laughs> over. <laughs> I, I, um, well, I uh, how many years ago? I, I bought the entire collection as a whole of Frankenstein series and the Dracula series. Oh, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. But uh, prior to that, mine were on VHS tape. Many of those, uh, some of those I had recorded from television back when the AMC channel was TV. Oh, wow. That's how long yeah. ago. How long ago it was? So they were all chopped up and well, had commercials. Well, not a, not a AMC at the time. AMC, like I said, was what TCM is today. Uh, they showed movies with no commercial breaks and in their original form. I, I had a lot of those, and uh, I, I digitized them eventually. Uh, but still, the quality was not that good and broke down. Actually, 
bought all of the Universal horror films uh, on DVD. I haven't gotten to Blu-ray yet. Oh my God, I'm I'm still 20th century. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit and talk about the the subtext and just, just okay. kind of see what you think about this stuff, right. okay? There's two different subtexts at work in this film that I've noticed or that I've had others point out to me. One is more obvious than the other. The obvious, the more obvious one being, of course, the religious mm-hmm. symbols in the film, the inversion of yeah. the Christ. So here we have our monster is a creature who's sort of an inverted Christ uh-huh. in a way. And I don't mean like an upside yeah. down or sacrilegious way, but this is a character who is dead and was brought to life only to be kind of crucified in that scene where they grab him and tie him up and put him up on that yeah, big yeah, stake. There's no, there's no denying what that scene is. And he longs to return uh-huh. to death. It's it's an exact inversion of the, the Christ of story. Death. He even Eight has a last living. supper. Yeah, that line of death. Hate living. Yeah. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. So we've got that going on. And then when he meets the hermit, the hermit himself, you can tell, is a yeah. religious man. He has he has the big crucifix on the wall. And the two of them meet, they make friends, they bond, he's blind, and then they have a last supper of bread and yeah. wine together before the outside world comes in and takes him and, and crucifies yeah. him. There's uh the iconography with him toppling the bishop statue, of course. And to my understanding, James Whale did not appreciate it when the editor ended that scene. There was a dissolve in the hermit's hut, and then there's the crucifix on the wall, like glows. Everything else fades away except for the crucifix. It stays there. And that was against the director's wishes. That was the work of, uh, I think, Ted J. Kent. I didn't know. I did not know that. So anyway, that's the stuff going on with the religious aspect of it. Also, there's the scene with that the censors change. Dr. Praetorius, when he is showing Frankenstein his homunculi, yeah. his yeah. tiny little uh-huh. people, which that's a weird turn, but we'll get yeah. back to that. He mentions something about how we're going to create life. And he says, refer to your Bible stories if need. Like in the, in the movie, he the original script called for Pretorius to say something along the lines of fairy tales. And he dismisses the spark of life idea as like a fairy tale. Yeah. But the censors, of course, did not like that. So they changed the written what's written in the script and what's in the film is that line was changed to your Bible stories. But the way the actor delivers that line, it's full of mockery. Yeah. Your Bible stories. Very slick, very slick way to get around what the censors are saying. I think James Whale just pulled him aside and said, put a little contempt in your voice when you say that. (laughs) This way to slip things back. This is by this time, by 1935, the Hayes Code had had been in effect for quite a while, but it wasn't enforced. By 1935, that's when the Hayes office decided it was going to start cracking down on stuff and and getting tough. So you're right. I mean, it's uh, under those kinds of situations. It's almost it's amazing that so much of that film was actually able to survive the original story. Yeah, agreed. And then, all right, so that's one, that's one reading of a, of a subtext there. And then just, I took a look at the Wikipedia page and I dug around a little bit on YouTube for, sometimes you can come across some pretty well-made video essays about films that really break down. And I found one on YouTube that talks about queer theory and how to read this film according to queer yeah. theory. And there's a lot there too. There's an awful lot there too. You've got Frankenstein himself, Dr. Frankenstein, and you've got Praetorius. And these two men, Praetorius even pulls Frankenstein away on his wedding day to a woman Uh so that the two of them can have a, quote, unholy union and create life. 
two men coming together to create life. Uh-huh. And then you have the scene, of course, with the hermit again and reading that it's these two guys, they find each other. And then the outside world comes barging in on them in a pretty hyper-masculine way to yeah. two hunters. Yeah. And they immediately just go into attack mode and chase these guys off. Do you think there's anything there? I, well, or maybe is there this- is. I, I've never thought about that until you mentioned it. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the Frankenstein creature was into bears. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. (laughs) And the thing that makes people really think that there might be something to that is, of course, James Whale Uh was one of the very few out homosexuals in Hollywood at that Uh time, which I guess would put him as just in America, one of the the few out gay men in America at that point. And the the, the two, I guess, lead actors aside from Karloff were either uh, gay or bisexual. Yeah. But Dr. Frankenstein and Praetorius, both of those uh-huh. actors were uh, were queer. So um, I don't know. Think there's anything there? Or is- I'm not going to say no. You know, uh, th- sure. there may be. Like I said, you've given me food for thought. I've, I've never I've never really thought about that before. Sure. Now, I've only touched the surface of what's online. Look up. Uh, there's a there's a queer theory video essay on YouTube regarding Bride of Frankenstein that goes into it. And if you just look at the, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein Wikipedia page, there's a pretty big entry on there also. Mm-hmm. But reading that... I came across, um, there's a novelization of the film that was published in England, and that made the implication that Praetorius himself was was gay, the character, not just the actor. Uh-huh. In the novel, he says to Frankenstein, be fruitful and multiply. Let us obey the biblical injunction. You, of course, have the choice of natural means. But as for me, I'm afraid that there is no course open to me but the scientific way. Wow. I mean, I I don't think in, in the film, I, I never thought there was, uh, well, once I became an adult and understood it, I never thought there was... Uh, there was any uh, effort to even hide the homosexuality of, of uh, Dr. Pretorius. I right. was, uh, when I watch it now, I go, this is such a huge celebration with this character. I mean, it's just, it's, it's out there. And to think this was 1935, nobody in the film made a joke about him other, other than, you know, Uno Connor's character that, you know, saying that about his name, Pretorius being a, well, what a queer name. You know, <laughs> that, that pretty much, you know, uh, I, I think that was, okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another thing, though, uh, another take on it from someone who probably would know, Curtis Harrington, who was a friend of and a confidant of uh, James uh-huh. Wales. And uh, he dismissed all this queer theory reading of the film as quoting here, a younger critic's evaluation. All artists do work that comes out of the unconscious mind. And later on, you can analyze it and say that the symbolism meant something. But artists don't think that way. And I would bet my life that James Whale would never have had such concepts in mind. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he says that my opinion is that it's just pure bullshit. That's a critical interpretation that has nothing to do with the original inspiration. Jimmy was first and foremost an artist, and his films represent the work of an artist. Not a gay artist, but an artist. Exactly. And that's coming from a guy that knew knew him pretty well. So I don't have well, reason good. to doubt. That's good. I feel, I feel like I haven't missed the whole point now. You know, <laughs> I am getting the movie. Yeah. Now, there could be subconscious stuff going on during the making of the film. And then later on, you look, I know from myself, I've created things and I didn't really realize what it was about until I got some distance and I looked back on it and I thought about what was going on in my life at that time. And I realized, oh, oh, a psychologist would just look 
at this and just pick me apart immediately. So I think there could be something there. I don't know that James Whale went out specifically to make a subversive pro-homosexual agenda film, but I could certainly see how something like that would creep into his art. You're right. I mean, the viewer, the audience... Like he said, they have their own mental state. And and you may look at a painting and you see something in that painting that the next person doesn't. You relate to something in that painting and someone else relates to that painting in a totally different way. I think that's probably what he's talking about here is, uh, you know, it, it, there's so much left up to interpretation. And that that is true art. If you can do that. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. Like we said earlier, you can watch it and just appreciate it on a purely narrative and visual level. You can dig a little bit deeper. And there's I think there's a lot to the religious underpinnings of the film and subtext. Yeah, and yeah. Um, as far as the, the the queer theory stuff goes, we may be just trying to <laughs> squeeze blood from a stone on that. I do think that there might be something in there as well, at least subconsciously. Yeah. Or maybe we're just. <laughs> seeing things that aren't there because well it's been so many years uh you know and we we as a society have changed so much and our perspective has changed so much that uh i mean there's, uh, there's no doubt that we would we would view a film in a different light uh you know in a you know see things in a different way these days here in the mm-hmm. 21st century yep. as as opposed to 1935 you were going to talk about dr Pretorius's little people yeah the homunculi yeah, yeah. that is a strange but little sweet comic little, little little scene in there and of course Esther Lanchester and <laughs> Esther Lancaster there you go sorry I'll get it right in a minute uh, <laughs> she was married to Charles Lawton and Charles Lawton had just won the Oscar for playing Henry VIII and the private lives of Henry VIII so you notice there's a little Henry VIII character uh in there one of the little people is the king you know mm-hmm. and and looks exactly the same way and that was that I understand was kind of added to uh because of Charles Lawton the horny little king yeah yeah like he's desperately trying to get over there to that yeah. Lady, yeah, yeah. That's when the movie took a really weird turn for me, and I'm not quite sure. I suppose the function of that scene was to establish that this guy's legit mad scientist. Yeah. That was sort of to establish his bona fides yeah, in a way. To, to, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Look what I've done. Yeah. I've already created life. It's just tiny. Yeah. Flawless special effects, by the way. That's 1935. Yeah. That's 85 years yeah. ago. And I'll be damned if those effects don't look fantastic. I remember, I, you know, I want to say they won an Oscar for those special effects, but. They should have. It was it was wonderful. It, it, it looked great. It was almost seamless. Yeah. Now, of course, we have modernized. Today, you watch special effects and you, and you just go, well, I know how they did that. They did that with a computer. But you watch special effects from those days and you go, I know how they did that, but I don't really know how they did that. <laughs> how did they do it's like that can't be real because I'm, what I'm seeing is so fantastic that it can't be yeah. real. And yet there it is on the screen. Lots of great stuff in this movie to appreciate. The score is beautiful and haunting and creepy. Performances are all there. Karloff himself 
did not want the creature to be verbal. No, absolutely not. He, he fought that that choice. I think he was wrong think he was in wrong that choice. I, I, I do. I think he was wrong as well. It worked in the first movie. Yeah. This one, he needed to he needed to communicate a little yeah. more. Yeah. And you you can't. It's very difficult to communicate things like you two leave. You should live. Yeah. Me and these other two are going to stay and die. Yeah. It's it's hard to say that with just your eyes. Yeah. And of course, the follow up to this movie was Son of Frankenstein, and he doesn't speak in that. So, right. oh, yeah. really? So, okay, maybe that that was the that was a trade off. But that was that was the last last time that Karloff played the creature was in Son of Frankenstein. Going back to that, going back to the final scene, you go, you know, you live. We die. We among we are to be among the dead. And he goes for the he goes for the handle. I always every time I see that I go. Why does every mad scientist put this one giant switch in his laboratory that blows everything up? Yeah, you know, don't put it. Don't install that switch. Why do you need that switch? I didn't get it because the movie has to end right yeah. now because we hit seventy five minutes. We got to go. <laughs> I guess that's why. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think Praetorius made a mention, like, "Oh, make sure you stay away from that exactly, lever." Just to set it up, you know, whatever you do, don't touch the lever. <laughs> it cuts to the monster looking at him, and then looking over at the lever, like, "Oh, really? Uh, hey, thanks a lot." <laughs> the, the only other thing that I would say about Bride of Frankenstein is you know you had you have the great citizen kane and 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 some some of the other great movies uh Casablanca, you know greatest movies of all time you know you don't have to put that on your favorites list but if you haven't seen it you, you know, if someone hasn't seen it they they just need to see it you know even if they're not into horror uh like there's there's so many other uh aspects to that film <laughs> in a strange way it's a romantic film it's a tragedy it's a, it's a religious film you know, as, as as you pointed out, and it's just uh, it's it's just beautifully done uh, for its time, and it and it looks wonderful. I'm glad that you said that this was one of your favorite movies. I'm glad you gave me an excuse to to revisit it. It's fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, I made a double feature out of this and Frankenstein last oh. night just to be uh, just to be up yeah. on it. Yeah. So Great you stuff. Know where it's coming from? <laughs> All right, Mickey. Well, thanks so much. It was a, a pleasure talking wonderful. to you. fun. What a delightful lady. I enjoyed that. All right. That's it for now. I want to thank my guest, Mickey Newton. You can find her blog at MickeyNewtonClassicCinema.com. And I recommend that you do. She's a great writer. And if you're interested in classic cinema, I think you'll be impressed. I want to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Eads. Filmography Club is produced here in Nashville, Tennessee by the hardworking folks that we own this town. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.